Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Here we go. Go hate my live. Zoom persona. This meeting is being live streamed. Got it. What's up, folks? 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast. Sorry. p.m. East Coast. This is Value After Hours. Bill Brewster and Jake Taylor. And uh, we got a list of things. There's finally some action in the markets. We're all action junkies. There's stuff happening. What's happening, fellas? Stuff. Lots of it. How about you? I got lots of things to talk about. Ten years spiking. What'd you say? Blood in the streets. Oh. I would say that there's like the the, the amount of blood in the streets is the amount of blood that my kids show me when they want a Band-Aid. I'm like, I can't even. It didn't. I don't think it even broke the skin. That's not even a scratch. There's a lot of things that are down. I've been saying this for a while. <laughs> yeah, the thing a- is, a lot of the big stuff isn't. But I mean, you know, FinTwit favorite Fastly is off from 128 to 40. I'd call that down. Yep, that's down. I've, I looked it up, the definition. 128 yeah. to 40 is down. Right. I mean, you know, other FinTwit favorite Zoom off the highs of 580 now touching 260. All right. I mean, uh, the biggest, the big stocks are always the last one to know that they're in a correction. Yeah, maybe. I don't. I'm. I'm just saying. The. Uh, I'd like to see the advanced decline line. If any of the if any of the uh, fans like to monitor stuff like that, I'd like some market internal stuff to pop up in my feed. What does that tell you? The the number that are advancing versus the number that are declining. Is that what well, it, like that? Two things. Like, what is the measure of, and then what does the measure mean? I have no idea. <laughs> at all but I, guys- I suspect i suspect that new highs on declining breath is not exactly what you're looking for if you're looking for a healthy market is that is that a bear sharami no dude uh i gotta look up my technicals book for a bear sharami did you i thought i thought i completely made that up i thought it was like shawarma or like falafel it was something that you got what a bear sharami that's a real thing man yeah i didn't know i thought i'd made it up and then, oh, come on. I saw it. Well, it's one of those you things. You knew I, it's a real thing. I heard the word. I just didn't know what it was. Yeah. I was just, you, I was just saying it because I thought it was a funny name. Yeah. You know it because you study bullish haramis. <laughs> it's like a, that's a harami, bro. Hang on. You see that in the box? What, what does gotta, it mean? It's, you're closing inside of a big day, right? And then you gap down and then you close in the middle. And then I guess the world falls apart. Obviously, duh. What, what, what were the really bad things? The death cross was the, the really bad mm. thing. Remember the death cross? I mean, a bearish Hindenburg seems pretty bad. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a good thing. Probably has to be confirmed by a close below the low of the day before. I bet that's how a bearish harami is close is is uh, confirmed, preferably on high volume, folks. You're welcome. Is it is it Harambe's is it, is it Harambe's uh, no, uh, anniversary? It's not a monkey's cousin. Didn't Harambe like kill a kid or something? Or what do you do? Harambe rescued that kid, mate. Check the check oh, the he, tape. I'm just saying, fake news. Um, so. I, I don't know if it's. I don't, I don't think it's appropriate to use moving averages and all that sort of stuff on the ten year. I'm just. I'm just saying that the ten year spiked up and it's. It's run over the one hundred day and the two hundred day. It just means it's up. It went bananas last week. It's up over one point five. Um, that 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 
is the most tra- it, it, nothing really happens until it gets over two. I don't know why two is the threshold. Do you know? Do you guys know what the significance of two is? It's higher than one nine. Mm. Yeah, round number. Math checks out. Yeah, come here for the hard hitting analysis, folks. <laughs> yeah, it. it uh, uh, John Authors, a uh, Bloomberg columnist, had this nice piece out this morning saying that. Um, it's the longest trend in finance. It starts in like 1980 at 16% the 10-year and it's run, you know, it got down to like 0.6% sometime last year in the depths or maybe it was even lower than that. I can't remember. And now it's sort of run up a little bit. It's running up quite a lot. Could be breaking out through a downtrend. That's possible. <laughs> I think it's got to get to two to break out. I think that might be the significance. Kind of depends on where you draw your lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we're bumping up against some resistance for sure. This is exciting stuff, man. This is this is what makes fundamental analysis worth doing. Well, I, w- I wanted to talk about it last. Well, it's a discount rate. It's important. Yeah. It's one of the things you need to look at. And the thing that's sort of kept it suppressed, probably there's been no inflation that we can measure anywhere. Uh, the emphasis being on that we can measure anywhere. But now it looks Thanks like to we, Rome, that, Powell. that we can or that we want to measure anywhere. <laughs> yeah, we, we, can, we just can't see it. We're, we're unable to find it. I mean, we aren't looking very hard, but we didn't find it. We're excluding all the things that are going it's transitory. on. Transitory. That's how we're avoiding transitory. it. Transitory. Jeez, God. That reminds me of one of my favorite uh, little pieces in, it's, uh, in Spaceballs when they're out there combing the desert. <laughs> And the guy's got he's got a pick and he's he's out there moving the the sand around like we haven't found shit. Underrated movie. I watched it about a uh, hundred so times funny. when I was a kid. So good. What topics have you guys got? I got I got a research affiliates bit, but um what are you guys doing? Uh why I'm not clean shaven. Uh how minivan alpha adds and how technical analysis plays into minivan alpha. And uh, more importantly, what it's like to hold Altice as it blows up. Okay. Sounds strong. I'm good. I have a, a little piece that I teased a couple of weeks ago about uh, fingerprinting analysis that might be kind of interesting. Finger painting. Printing, not painting. That, that's going to follow right on from the, uh, from the technical analysis discussion. Yeah, that's, that's finger painting. <laughs> I'm not actually talking technicals. The technicals on Altice suck on high volume, by the way. But uh, I do think it's an interesting conversation. You guys cool if I not if I uh, lead off? Go nuts. Take it. All right. So Altice uh, showing people why hedge fund hotels and leverage is probably not a great combination has had an interesting uh, sort of path. My uh, infatuation with the idea came from the idea that I've uh, historically done pretty well with cable assets and think I understand the industry relatively well. And Altice um, is a company that is not known for its customer service, is not known for employee morale being particularly high, uh, is not known for cutting prices to its customers. This has, is a cable company we're talking about here. Yeah. yeah. Which... Well, you know, look, I think uh, I think that there's a reasonable argument to be made that Comcast and Charter actually have changed the way that they approach the market. Um, maybe that's uh, 
you know, a stupid comment that's driven by endowment bias, but I'm not sure that like the AT&T and Verizon Fios subscribers are super happy with their service either. No, nobody. Um, I, I got Cox and they're, they're just as bad as everybody else. They're just like yeah. the, price, the price is going up t- 2x. Cool. You, you got no one else you can go to. So I know it's cool. I'm <laughs> just letting you know. Yeah. So like, I didn't so really you, ask if it was cool. <laughs> so here's a good thing uh, with Altice, right? Like they have this rack rate. And I guess that people that are paying the rack rate are people that don't call. And they don't call for like 10 years, right? So these are like people that are just paying their bill and haven't churned. Yeah. And like, how are they rewarded for not churning and not calling constantly? Altice fucks them as hard as humanly possible. And I think that as a general, like, so what has cracked the story um, is they have gone to negative sub declines this year. They're going to say, if you look at 2019 on a two-year stack basis, our growth is still there. 2020 pulled forward some demand. We haven't quite had the same mover churn that we normally have. Um, I think reality is competition has gotten somewhat tougher in some of their markets, and they're now losing incrementally to Fios. They have the, like, the thing that got me excited. Well, not excited about the idea. The reason the idea was palatable to me is they have a footprint called Suddenlink. Suddenlink is in a lot of the Sunbelt, and it competes against some legacy uh, assets that I don't think are very um, strong to compete against. Altice has always, like, if you've done the research on them, they, they've, they've been pretty, uh, at least the company line has been that they're going to invest in fiber. And on a math, like the math of it all worked. I think still still probably does work. If I think a really good podcast to listen to if you're interested is Kyler Hassan and Andrew Walker did a podcast on Altice. And if you listen to that podcast, it is a bull pitch for a stock and it takes about 55 minutes to get to one thing nice about the company. So this is like sort of um, like a real value investment, right? Like, oh, it's hairy and it's priced in and... It justifies the spread to the good competitors. I think that that may not prove to be incorrect, but um, I mean, my cost basis was 33. I think it's now a teenager. Uh, Last I checked, it was in 1998. There are now concerns that management is going to take the company under. Almost all of the analysts on the street say this thing's too cheap, but who knows if management's going to screw you as a minority shareholder. And in the Goldman Sachs conference that sort of tanked the entire stock, the CEO said, um, you know, we may relever the balance sheet. We're going to invest for a couple quarters and then we're going to revisit. The Goldman analyst said, you're already four and a half to five times levered. You said relever, or I think he said five times, your target's four and a half to five. You said relever, are you talking about taking the company private? And the CEO, Dexter, said, like, yes, that was the code that I was talking about. So, um, you know, it's I think that uh, people that I have seen dunking on the idea are probably too confident that the story has played out. 
Um, if it does get taken private somewhere around $30, I think that it would behoove people to remember that this is a game of bets, some of which lose. And if your downside on a bet is somewhere between 10 and 20%, maybe that's not such a bad outcome, but, um, you know, I personally sold on Friday because I think that the really, really hard thing to figure out in a name like this is, a company. People don't like when you call it a name, but at this point, it's just a freaking stock trading on paper. Uh, it's not really a, a company at this point. Um, and the reason that I say that is now you almost have to handicap, not what do I think the business can do? It's what do I think management will do to me before the business does what I think it will do? And that puts an artificial duration stoppage on a bet in my mind. And ironically, the lower the stock goes, the higher the probability that you get screwed is, which is not your typical outcome. So whereas, you know, in theory, the lower it goes, the better it is. Uh, here's a very real example of that's not the case. Uh, well, that's potentially not the case. Whether or not the game theory makes sense to take it private, you know, people can debate that, but uh, it's been an absolute disaster. It was driven by evaluation first thinking. And I think I probably ran past at least three yellow flags. Mm. So why did I do it? Probably because I think good assets are a little bit rich. Was that a smart decision? Not even close. There is an interesting kind of game theory that plays out in this take under situation where... <clears throat> you almost have to become pot committed where you have to keep averaging down your price so that when the buyout does come, you're at least like it's, it will typically kind of be over at least what the market price had recently been at. So you almost hedge your bets by getting more and more pot committed into it. It's like a very dangerous and weird game theory playing out there sometimes. My strategy has been to do exactly the opposite. Um, yeah. And the reason, <clears throat> and I'm not, I'm not folding permanently at all. Uh, I will watch this thing like a hawk because I still believe that, um, if the, if they commit to the long term, um, and you know, we'll, we'll just sort of see, but I, I do think the stock is too cheap. Uh, I also think it is arguably untouchable right now. But I, I've seen too many people blow up by buying down into positions that they think are getting cheaper and cheaper to do that to myself. I'd rather just the bet was laid and I'm either going to mismanage the bet or let it play out as it was. Yeah, John Hempton has a nice kind of checklist on uh, averaging down that's interesting. Might be worth checking out if you're, if you're so inclined. Yeah, the, uh, the man... Uh, the science of hitting wrote about uh, that not too long ago in his sub stack. And mm -hmm. Alex and I talk a lot and I, I think he's right. Um, between what Hempton has said and what Bill Miller has said, which I don't remember the letter that Bill Miller said it, but he said that like his firm did a study on where they've gone wrong and they've, they've uh, I'm almost certain it was him. If it wasn't, I'm sorry, Bill, I know you listen and I know you're a super big fan. The feelings mutual. I got mad love for you, but uh they, they said um, that they've gotten themselves in the most position or the most trouble when they think that the stock has declined too far relative to the business expectations. And that in almost every case, it has been a better decision for them to just exit. What's the, what's the main issue for them? They've got 
Fios is coming and their DSL twisted pair coax or something like that, and they can't overbuild Fios without spending a whole heap of money. Well, no, I think that their main issue is they have a shit shareholder base from like, uh, if you were looking at quality shareholder bases, it's not a quality shareholder base as defined by Lawrence Cunningham. It's what a bunch of people in this instance. Well, because it's it, everybody's addicted to the buyback, right? Because everybody thinks it's too cheap based on current free cash flow. Well, the, the cash flow exists, arguably, maybe not true, but arguably, because they've pushed price too far and they've cut costs too deeply. They've now arguably cut to the bone and you've got to potentially shrink your margins while investing in a CapEx cycle. And if you have a bunch of hedge funds that sell because all of a sudden the story changed and you might take it under, your shareholder base matters a ton because then all of a sudden you're not making a business bet, you're making a stock bet, in my opinion. Good comment here from Arthur Watkins. Charter filed for bankruptcy when it was over-levered and going through its DOCSIS 3.0 CapEx cycle. It's a different situation. What's the difference? I mean, Altice is like, if... um, if somebody informed wants to tell me that this is a legitimate bankruptcy risk, I'm happy to listen to how, but I don't, I don't think that's the issue. Charter was way more levered and uh, Altice's bonds are not trading in a way that indicate bankruptcy risk is on the table to me, nor do I actually think it is. What do you think the take under happens at like 30 bucks? I don't know, man. The lower the stock goes, the lower the take under. I mean, that's the problem. Uh, you know, if, if the shareholders turn over, you need a vote from the shareholders. And if the new shareholders bought at 20, what do they care about the people that bought at 33 or 35 or 40 or any of this? So, Are there any big minority shareholders that are any smart minority shareholders? Well, I mean, the, the guy that controls it controls it. So, um, yeah, you're in, a, you're in a bad situation potentially. Now, how bad is it? I don't know. We'll all find out together. But I can tell you that the ride has not been particularly fun, regardless of the outcome. Stay tuned. Yeah. But I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think this is a bankruptcy story. I think um, if somebody's done a lot of work and wants to have that conversation, I'm happy to have it. But I, I don't think that that's a informed comment. No offense to the people that listen. Who's asking the question? Yeah. I'm, I might have read it in a different way. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, you know, we'll see. It just kind of sucks because everything that they said, I actually agree with, right? Like going out and investing in your sudden link footprint, even if they went out and they paid people more and they got employee morale up and they even gave people a little bit of, uh, you know, a consumer benefit by not raping them on the rack rates. Like all of that, I would argue, improves terminal value. Um, if you're truly driving the business in the right way, but your terminal value might come in six months and, or nine months. And I think management has every single incentive to potentially sandbag all of the communications until then. And that sucks. That goes to, do you believe these are good people? And can you do a good deal with people with bad incentives? So it's been an interesting learning experience, probably one of the most valuable ones that I've had over the last three years. Uh, Absolutely terrible. But um, I think I will probably remember this one much more than any other one other than my beloved curate. 
Are you updating your checklist with all these new found items that you're learning? I don't know, man. Uh, you know, going to the journalistic, uh, you know, um, look, it's unclear to me that the bet was bad. I think that um, Livium Capital has asked me a question on ideas like this, where he has said that he doesn't like these kind of bets because even if the bet is not bad, there's a potential to mismanage the bet. And uh, there's a real possibility that I mismanage the bet as opposed to the bet being bad. So it's kind of like what's... Yes. Look, thus far, it's been a complete disaster. There's no hiding from that. So we'll see how it all turns out. It's kind of like how Buffett and Munger have observed that like a good business just keeps throwing off easy decisions and bad businesses throw off hard decisions internally to the business for management. And maybe there's a kind of similar corollary for investments where like, you know, the, the good, the, the good businesses, the good investments kind of throw off more and more easier investment decisions. Like, Oh, should I trim this huge winner? Or I don't know, maybe that's easier than like, God, do I keep plowing money into this to lower my cost basis? So my take under doesn't get worse. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the good investments, um, like the truly good ones, like, I mean, one of the reasons that I rotated into Altice is I thought Charter was like a little bit rich and I thought Altice offered relatively better IRRs or whatever. And that was really, really, um, at least in the interim, very, very stupid. And I guarantee you harder to manage. And if you listen to Charter talk, those guys are operators, like fundamentally read any of their calls, read Winfrey, talk about that business. It's like, it's amazing. It, it's exactly what you'd want to hear. The Altice guys don't do that for me, but somehow, you know, the multiple got me all hot and bothered because I have this disease. I apparently am attracted to businesses that shouldn't be public. That's what I've learned pretty recently, which is like not very rewarding. This is like the strippers of the investment world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just kind of lost trying to put some kids through college. I just can't say no. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Yeah. On that note, JT, yeah. you want to do your... Uh... Uh, yeah, we could do some veggies. Um... Anyway, I hope that was helpful to people. Uh, you know, good to talk about getting the shit kicked out of you occasionally. Yeah, it's good to rub your nose in it. Uh, so fingerprinting which may seem a little odd to start out with, but let's, let's open the scene on a, a commuter train in Madrid, 2004, and all these explosions go off from a series of bombs that were planted. 192 people killed, 2,000 injured. Some fingerprints are found on a plastic bag at the crime scene, sent to Interpol. The FBI lab jumps into high gear, starts processing it, they find conclusively but that the fingerprints belong to this guy named Brandon Mayfield. He's a former officer in the army. He married an Egyptian wife and converted to Islam. And now he's a lawyer that represents men who have been charged with attempting to travel to Afghanistan to join the Taliban. FBI, uh, they sit on, he's been, and he's been on the FBI's watch list for a while already. Uh, they bug his house, they tap his phones. They eventually arrest him and they hold him for two weeks trying to figure out if it was him, but he's never formally charged and they eventually let him go. 
And during that two weeks that it was held, it turns out that the Spanish investigators find a, a matching print to another suspect that they have. So how did the FBI arrest a guy that was living in Oregon, hadn't left the country in a de- decade for having matching fingerprints on, a, on bomb materials found in Madrid? Well, can I have a guess? He posted, yeah. he put, it's, a tw- it's his twin. It's an identical twin. Or he, post, <laughs> yeah. he posted a bag. He posted something in the bag. I wish oh, that I the know. I wish that it was that much intrigue to it. This is more actually just purely human error. They mix it up in the lab. No, not quite. Um, but let's rewind a little bit and go back to some of the the history of fingerprinting, which, as a, as an identification technique, uh, was really formalized in the late 19th century by the Scottish phys- physician named Henry Faulds, um, and so a little bit of uh, terminology here that when you they find fingerprints, they're called latent fingerprints, like they're left at the scene. And oftentimes they're overlapping, they're smudged, they're only partial. Uh, so there's actually a fair amount of subjectivity to this exercise. Although when we think about it, we think, oh God, this is like hard science. We're matching fingerprints. Like th- there's never any mistakes here, right? Um, and then when they actually collect fingerprints in a controlled setting, you know, that's like whether it's ink or, you know, you let's say you clear customs and you put your hand on the little scanner. Uh, those are called exemplar prints. And that's, so they match the exemplar prints with latent prints to see, is this a definitive match and an identification? Is it a, a potential or can we rule this out? Is it, or, you know, is it inconclusive um, or is it definitely not that? It seems infallible, but it, it uh, and especially when we compare it to eyewitness testimony, which is notoriously terrible. Uh, so this, this neuroscientist named Etil Drawer, I think is how it's pronounced, uh, he wondered if there might be some noise in these judgments because latent prints are, you know, there's some subjectivity to it. Um, and so what he did was these uh, these fingerprint experts agreed to at some point in time in the next five years uh, be fed prints that they had already at one point identified to see do they even match with their own predictions of whether this is accurate or not right and which is a good way to tell if there's noise in a system is you you get a second reading on this using the same person so but he added a twist and some of the people were given some information about this second set of prints, like uh, suspect has an alibi, or maybe detectives believe that this person is guilty, or this person confessed to the crime already, right? So they're given some confirmation one way or the other at the beginning of the process. And it turns out that it hugely altered their decisions. Like the first study found that like four and five altered their decision based on this nudge from some like initial confirmatory data. A second study found that uh, four in 24 decisions uh, were were overturned, like basically contradicted. So, I mean, a one in six is not a hard science necessarily as much as I think maybe we all believe that it is. All right. So, and what's going on there, uh, and this is probably deserves its own, veggie segment at some point, but this, there's this predictive processing that happens in the brain where from the top down, you have sort of a model of what you're expecting to see. 
And the bottom up is your senses feeding up this, this information in the form of electrical signals. And those two things are being matched in a, in a neural network that is your brain. And then figuring out like, is there, is there a surprise or not? Like, does this model of what I think it's going to be match with what I'm being fed? And what ends up happening is that like the examiners literally don't see the, these little like you know nuances in the latent prints because they're the top down is not looking for them because the the top down part of the brain that is filtering the model is already looking for the answer that it's expecting right and so this is how confirmation messes with uh messes with our actual what we view of our sensory input uh so in the mayfield case there were three experts who got this wrong and the first one who looked at it was really impressed by the power of the automated system that found correlations with his print and the latent print that was taken in Spain. So th there's the first little like uh, red flag for us is that it, computer systems, if we believe in them too much, might be throw us off and, and make us to close our minds a little bit. Um, the second, uh, so the second person who looked at it knew that the first knew the first person found it to be a match and that that it was like a, a very well-respected supervisor. So they weren't going to, they were much less likely to come in and say, no, this guy is wrong. Right. Because it's like sort of their boss practically. Um, and then a third independent person was looking at it and was also given that it was conf you know confirmed and was just verifying it. Right. So you had three experts who all had, too much information at the beginning of their assessment, basically. Um, now, lest you think that they don't understand this, uh, they do understand this, and there's, but we have a blind spot bias. So 71% of the forensic experts agree that, they're, that bias is a potential concern in their jobs. 26% of them believe their own judgment could be potentially influenced, <laughs> right? So we always think it's everyone else, it's not us. Right. We're we're the ones who are are not biased by this stuff. So um, really what's important is that the sequencing of information actually can have a huge impact on the premature intuitions that we can draw from that information. And so they call it um, in the science, they call it linear sequential unmasking. So only showing data to someone when it's the right time, right? And if so, if you have too much information before you actually go do your own work on it, that can totally mess up and bias how you interpret the data. So um, if you really want to have truly like the wisdom of the crowds emerge and have group like a group work on a project and try to like come up with the right decision, you have to be very careful about the order of information that those people receive. And the second person really should not know what the first person found to be true because it, it will wildly impact how they will interpret the actual, like the new data that they're looking at. So you think about this in the investment context. If you work on in groups on investment ideas and you start out with like anything more than just the ticker name, basically, like, and you have someone gives you their pitch, their version of it, you are almost already compromised, similar to how fingerprint, um, which I would say has much less smudge to it than, than the investment process potentially, uh, and much less potential for noise to creep in. Um, I think you, you have to be very, very careful about the sequential 
information that is delivered to you and when you actually do your own work and then compare notes with other people. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, trying to take something from hard science, a little bit of fingerprinting and showing that we have to be very careful how we structure our investment processes. So there's this automated system that does it scan the fingerprint against the database or does somebody have to enter the fingerprint in by saying like, here's a wall, here's a whirl or whatever it is. Here's a, whatever the other thing is. No, I think it's uh, well, I, I guess I don't really know, but I would imagine that it's just like, here's a, here's a latent picture. Like here's a picture of the, the fingerprint we got off the plastic bag, run it against the FBI's database of, of known potential matches. And then, and then like show me the ones who have the highest correlations or whatever. Because it's potentially like there's, if it's a computer looking at it and a computer making its own decisions about what's important and then comparing that to another, I would have thought that's reasonably unbiased. But if you have somebody entering it and they have to go and manually kind of identify all of the identifying mm, Like features. match these points kind of. Yeah. And then you have two that sort of, they could just be like entered in, entered in randomly, get the same answer or. I don't know the exact procedure of how the, the computer works. Yeah, but you're certainly biased by hearing this has been confirmed twice. We just need you to. Yeah, we just, just make, yeah, just check this out. And, you know, you're the independent third party assessment, right? <laughs> yeah, it's but one how- of the biggest problems in investing, right? It's as soon as you hear somebody else's pitch, it's very hard. Like you get told a company is a great company all the time. Very hard to go and look at that and say, it's not, which is why I like spending a lot of time looking at what the shorts are doing. Cause I think the shorts, at least they're skeptical. They're, they're, they're looking at it. They've got their own biases. There's no question they've got their own problems, but at least it's, it's a different perspective. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. All right. I, I, I mean, proceed. I, I don't know that. I don't know that I, I that I buy that shorts are less skeptical. I, I don't, I don't know. Less bias. They're I've read some from a different perspective that they, they could, I guess, be man, biased, I've read a lot of short reports direction. that I think are garbage. Yes. And with so long. I. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends who. Like it's just like having that, it's like having that different, it's just having someone, you know, if you had a team of analysts and you have, I've identified this idea, you guys go and tell me why it's a good idea. You guys go tell me why it's a bad idea. Yeah. Red yeah. Team, they call that. You co- yeah, yeah. Your confirmation bias is to find the bad stuff. Yeah. That's, that's what's helpful. Yeah. I buy that. But even then you have to be very careful about the, how much information each person has before starting their, their independent assessment. I just, here's my beef. Fundamentally, I just don't really believe that you should do work in a vacuum. Like at my core, I don't think anybody that's great has sat behind a desk, not talked to anybody and figured stuff out. And I, I mean, whether it's Buffett going to Geico, I don't think Buffett goes to Geico if it's not for Graham, if it's Buffett hiring investigators to go out and find things out about people. Um, like I just, I, I don't think that I believe in doing things alone. No, it doesn't have to be alone, but I know the, the source of the information, how you find it. Theoretically, yeah. I should start at A and go to Z and only read 10 Ks and peel back the onion in a way. I mean, I just don't know that I buy it. So but that's I fine. Think Kahneman would say 
uh, or would probably prescribe this procedure, calls it estimate, talk, estimate. And what you do is you, you on your own without, you haven't talked to anybody. Like, let's say we have a group of people we're trying to make a decision on something. You go make your own independent assessments, you write it up, and then everyone shares later after they've done their own work, you talk through it, talk through the points, hopefully some of like you reveal, you get some outside view, right? Which is the important part that we're trying to control for, but you don't get your outside view before you have your own inside view first. So you talk and then you make another estimate. Now that you've incorporated the outside view some, you've heard some of the other arguments, you make another estimate and then actually a blend of everyone's estimates at that point, like you can get a, a pretty reasonable uh, wisdom of the crowd start to emerge. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I sort of agree with that because of Greenblatt's little thing that he's, he says too. You also have the problem that often the financial statements are just hard to interpret and you need someone like there's a weird thing and lots of, and lots of, and you can go, go to the CFO. What's this mean? Go to somebody external. What's this mean? It's hard. Like it's just, hard to figure everything out by yourself. Yeah. I just think like there's so many experts out there that actually have information that um, I don't know, not talking to them seems really foolish. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think anyone's saying don't seek outside views. No, I understand. You're saying form your own view, then go talk to people, then up your view, then go talk to people, then up your view, then go talk. I mean, I get it. Um, I just don't know how I don't get the sense that that's how people typically do it, though. I think people sort of like pitch each other and get biased. And then you go look like, well, is are the few things that they said seem to be true? Like and I go, you know, you go look for the data to support that. And like, lo and behold, you found it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I guess uh, I would say that I think it's more accurate to say. If somebody is selling a newsletter and or holds anything in their portfolio in size, they're likely biased, so heavily discount what they have to say. But I don't, I don't know that I agree. I, I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm no good at this anyway, so I'm just some fucking guy on a podcast. I, I just don't know that I agree with it. I'm probably theoretically imperfect. Uh, I just, I, I don't think that without talking to people, I've come to very accurate conclusions almost ever. That's fair. Like even at the bank, like we would, you know, we'd, we'd hire informant. And, and I do think this is why experts have, you know, information to sell to people, because I think that they're much, much better than a generalist at assessing a situation on average within a sector. But then I think generalists are probably better at, at cross sector analysis and seeing all of the opportunities. Should we move on? Sure. Yeah, let's let's get some uh, RA confirmation bias. Research affiliates uh, joined the long line of AQR and uh, GMO coming out with uh, value is not dead. Did I miss the value turn? Um, the, there's a, there's a couple of good lines in there. They say uh, that value stocks are the only stocks likely to generate five to ten percent real returns over the next decade. They do this interesting analysis where there are two types of um, two types of stock market crashes. There's like the bubble and they identify this, the data sort of runs back to 1950 or something like that. So there's a biotech bubble in the late eighties, nineties and the tech bubble from the late nineties. And then there are these 
four other crashes, and that was the Nifty 50 and 73, and they classified these as economic recessions rather than a bubble collapsing. So Nifty 50 and 73, oil crisis in late 70s, early 80s, uh, GFC in 2008 and COVID, the most recent one. And the significance is that value seems to do reasonably well in the, in the collapse of a bubble, but doesn't do particularly well in, in an economic recession because they tend to be economically sensitive companies and often they haven't participated in the bubble. And so they, they have this analysis where they say the two years that follow the collapse, value does um, better in the, or value does equally well in, uh, in either scenario, but value does much better in a bubble type collapse. So they're saying that the most recent one was a COVID. That was an economic recession, which is why value got so beaten up. And they say um, that if you look across the, all of the asset classes, value in the States is the worst of sort of EM, UK, all of the other areas, but the, the value of value, so the, the percentile of value is at the 95th percentile in the States, which is still a very, very cheap, but down, it's recovered a little bit from like the 100th percentile that it was at in COVID, but it's still basically as cheap as it's ever been on the sort of composite score. It's cheaper still than it was in 2000 on a composite basis. So it sort of means that there's reasonable returns for value with any luck somewhere over here. We're probably walking into a second a second big drawdown. Maybe this is a bubble drawdown. I don't know. Interesting. What do you guys think? I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think all the, I think a lot of these things, uh, like I, I, I think um, it would be helpful if uh, I saw like sector overlays when I read stuff like value. I, that, that I would be interested in. Um, I think the same when I see like EM pitched, like I, you know, I'm in Russia, for instance, if you want to cite Russia's PE, like, I don't think Russia US is a valid comp. I think you do Russia versus some blend of energy and financials comp in the US and then say, okay, well, is that actually, you know, uh, how does it trade relative to those? Because Russia, you're basically long energy financials, and then you haircut it for lack of uh, governance, right? Um, so that's just kind of when what I- about when UK? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about their economies. Um, it just seems to me that uh, I'd just like to know more about the sectors and the underlying. This I, I think a lot of these software companies are fucking expensive, like really expensive. And I think a lot of really good things need to happen for people to make double digit returns from here. But outside of that thought, I don't have many thoughts that are any good. What you got, JT? Can you be drawn? (laughs) Uh, I will say outperformance, yes. Absolute return. (sighs) Not quite sure. They're saying, so what they're saying is uh, five to 10% real return. So they're saying returns over inflation. And I think that the US. What what time frame? uh, Next, that's a good question. Next Five decade, seven years, yeah. Last seven years. No, no, next next ten years. Next decade, yeah. So they're saying real five percent from U.S. value, and I guess you got to go more exotic to get the ten percent. That's a pretty good return. Real five is good. That's that's um, that's a pretty good bogey. 
I don't know. I was promised uh, 17.8 or something, wasn't Nominal. it? Nominal. Last, last uh, survey we saw. Nominal, yeah, you get your five and then you add your 12% inflation on top and that's how you get to 17. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, fundamentally, I, I guess it, I guess what, um, I guess it all depends on your reinvestment rate and your return on invested capital. That's, that's my answer. If, uh, you know, if a company can reinvest a lot and they can do it at high returns and there's a lot of growth, then I don't think it matters whether it's value or growth. I think, uh, that company probably does pretty okay. As long as you don't pay too, too much. And if a company has to reinvest a ton to stay swimming uh, right around its cost of capital, I think a lot more things can go wrong. And if that's in a low multiple stock, I think you can still get pretty screwed. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Let me see if I can reframe the question. If What would be the minimum locked-in annuity-type return that you would take for the next decade? And you would then punt all your market risk what would be the required return for you five percent real that's that's about the number for me five or six percent i mean i think four percent real honestly but five five percent real i think is that's free money bill you should buy google um yeah i think five percent real is good how about you jt how convenient went into the jake tricks right at that time yeah I just, I don't know. There's so Sorry, much money. I said, I said the number, but you're never going to hear it now. It went into the matrix. <laughs> yeah. I just think uh, there's so much money out there that demanding much more than 5% real is probably not a way to make deals. I think that historically 5% real is like a pretty big number. Yeah. I it's the real right. it's, that makes it a big number. Like the, I don't know what the underlying rate of inflation is, but could easily be two times that. I mean, including inflation, so one times that, so altogether nominal is like 10 or something like that. Three questions in, guys, where we're, uh, we got about 15 to go. It's going to be interesting to see the, I mean, these supply chain issues are like really real. Yeah, they kind of seem to be stacking up right now too, huh? Like the, yeah. like the container ships off the coast here. They really are like all over the horizon yeah it's the covid protocols when they come in apparently they gotta clean them all up it's a huge uh slows everything down as it comes through yeah it's a problem they're doing that doesn't match like biology that my understanding of how covid spreads <laughs> no i thought it was i thought we decided it wasn't contact it's, it's like that simpsons episode where the guy sneezes into the box and sends it over the home <laughs> I can't believe you guys just got us demonetized again. I was like really looking forward to this. Ugh. Where's Thomas Brazil to super tip us? Um, I got a few things here. Do you guys know anything? Oh, Bill, you got any thoughts on home furnishing companies like restoration hardware? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> no, don't bring that up ever again. <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts on the energy crisis in China? <clears throat> I wasn't aware that there was one. Nope. I, I mean, home furnishing companies are probably going to do well for a long time. That's my thought. Whether or not it's priced in, 
uh, go read your own primary sources, confirm what uh, your own estimates are, and then start talking to people and update accordingly. Those showrooms look cool. I want to go and drink in that club. Oh, Restoration Hardware? Yeah. Yeah. What are they calling them? They got, they got a jet now. They got all types of stuff, man. It's a lifestyle brand. Gary's either a genius or a maniac. We'll see. Regarding electricity, I'm, as someone who knows a little bit about it, I've, I'm shocked that we don't have more routine outages like all over the place, different countries. Just the fact that you have to instantaneously produce and consume at the same time at all times, the exact amount of electricity uh, is it boggles down like all the time or, you know, like semi-regularly. Say that again. It, it boggles down. No, it boggles the mind that it oh, isn't man. more routinely like intermittent. That's a scary thought from someone who knows about electricity. Well, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a testament to modern engineering and, and humans uh, ability to control nature in some, some tiny ways. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on the debt ceiling? Yeah, I've heard about this for years and years and years, and it's never been Truly anything. <laughs> Republicans have a structural advantage because they don't really care if the government works. Democrats are too lo- in love with the government, so they care too much. So they're always going to get waxed in these negotiations because they come from a fundamentally worse position. Those are my thoughts. None of it matters. It'll be done soon enough, and a lot of people will bitch. Ratings will go up, and we will move on. Are they going to close down the monuments? Who cares? Who cares? Theater. How many fucking times do I have to hear about the debt ceiling in my life? More, more times yet. It's not done yet. Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen all the time and nothing's ever going to happen from it. It's all just political theory and or game, whatever. It's nonsense. Theater. theater. It's theater. Yeah, that's right. Does anybody it made me so mad I can't even think. No. It's the weirdest thing. Uh, do you... Do any of you three use an alternative measure for inflation? Inflation other than CPI seems like a flawed measure to measure the real flawed method to measure the real dollar. You well, get really that, conspiracy th- like yeah. The ch- Chatwood, Chatwood Index is gone. MIT's billion price project they fell in line when they were showing some real mm-hmm. inflation. Uh, shadow stats is uh, you're, you're a lunatic if you talk about shadow yeah. stats. They so, do a really no, good job of of. Uh, positioning the the anything that isn't cpi into like oh well that's just crazy talk like you need a tinfoil hat like it it, it gets marginalized very quickly doesn't it that would just disappear i thought that was a, like that was a spell like we're going to measure it on a basket of goods that people actually buy in each city and they're like oh it's running at like 11 percent uh it's too high better, better hide that one yeah you don't the want website's that again, gone now. it's weird was my volume too low this whole episode? No. Yeah. All right. My bad. I just realized uh, one of the kids had been messing with it. Why isn't Greenlight Einhorn having an all-time great year with the value rotation? Well, we sort of paused, right? We we top we we, we had a run from like September last year through to like March, and then it's all come back a fair bit since March, which is why GMO and research affiliates and AQR are out with their new value value's not dead it's sleeping i wonder if part of it is uh i mean correct me if i'm wrong on this but 
it's been somewhat a size rotation as well, right? Like, yeah. So well, size ran up with it, and then size has, has shut the bed since. So since sort of March or something like that. I don't know what like the average market cap of green lights portfolio looks like, but I have to imagine it skews probably a little bigger, right? Yeah, but it's been sizes. Got, you know, so the, the smaller stocks have been kicked around too. Yeah, I don't know. Just guessing. Right. He doesn't own the right stuff. That's why his performance isn't great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he should have. He should have bought what was going to go up. And if it didn't go up, he shouldn't have bought it. Yeah, obvious. Simple. This is an easy game. Um. How many books does JT read a year to get all the veggies? Uh, I don't know, average about 50. One a week? Yeah, about typically. I can't color that fast. Uh, precious metals, they've been brutal in recent weeks. Have they? I would do gold. Gold's interesting. Ship business, though. Watch Gold Miners on Discovery Channel and tell me if you like it. I think we got equipment breaking down all the time, but it could work. I could see commodities working in general. The the gold miners have all got religion after being sort of. This is the problem with gold miners, right? Or any of these sort of commodity businesses when they get their run on, you think that their margins going to go up, but their margins get eaten by because now they got to spend more money on talent. You got to get somebody out to a marginal gold mine all of a sudden the margins all get eaten away and they all go try and buy each other again and so right now i think their financial their, their balance sheets look pretty good they they've bought back some stock they've got some cash there's lots of interesting mining companies around but not going to do anything until gold goes for a run and then you know you're going to participate along with gold probably leave it to gold do pretty well i would say but it's tough to pick that bottom and it's been looking like a bottom for a long time, I think. Those are, that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I mean... Just about I apply it to any commodity. That's what I'm sure. saying, right? Like every single commodity right now is uh, was beat up for the last 10 years, so it'll work for the next 10. I, I really, I mean, maybe that's maybe an oversimplification, but I, d- I do think in general, it's like, oh, they've all got religion. They've all lived through the worst 10 years ever. And to be fair, that may be correct. I mean, it was a terrible 10 years. Like if you're old enough to remember the bricks and the commodity boom of the 2000s, like, the, yeah, it was crazy. And it resulted in a lot of overcapacity. And then the last 10 years have been absolute decimation and no one wants to touch them at all. And this is how capital cycle theory works. Yeah. And then we got another one coming. Yeah. Kind of just reverse course. When, when it's embarrassing to buy tech, that's when you need to go and buy a lot of tech. True. Too much change in tech. You can't, it's untouchable. You can't buy it. <laughs> Who does Elon Musk date now that he's single? Maybe Kathy. Martian. Kathy. What if he dated Kathy? That'd be dope. Conflicts of get interest. Together. <laughs> That'd be a good name for the book eventually. Conflicts of interest. <laughs> the romance novel of Kathy and Elon. I'm just looking at Einhorn's portfolio. At least I think it's his green brick. I don't know how the stock's done, but that's, I mean, 
it's in a good place. But then you got like Bright House, Atlas Air Worldwide, Tech Resources, Change Healthcare, Camorras. I think they probably, I mean, I, I think all the bets probably make sense, but they don't seem like the type of bets that are getting rewarded in the market is sort of why I don't think it's working if it's not working. But I bet he does fine. That put, I mean, I know it's kind of a, that put for, that return history is one of the more amazing things that I've ever seen because from like 96 to 2007, so a decade, he was outperforming by 24.5%. And since then, he's basically, um, he's underperformed by like 6 or 7% a year. Didn't he short a lot of stuff? Does he, he does short, right? He does, yeah. Was he short like Netflix? He's been, he's been, as you say, short all the wrong stuff, sold all the yeah. wrong things. It's a problem. Don't short you don't want to price short the stuff that go goes up. up. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's rule number one. Uh, which tech do you like the best? The big yeah. kind. <laughs> yeah. What is I that? Once I make up the index, it's kind of like I had a look at Microsoft's uh, multiple expansion. Yeah, that is very impressive multiple expansion. Ski jump multiple expansion on top of uh, pretty impressive. That's a shower well. and a grower. That's impressive. I got to <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. I mean like Google, I don't know. Salesforce kind of makes some sense, but I don't know it well enough to say that, but you know, Microsoft, Google, all that stuff. I think Facebook's probably the one that makes me the most nervous. It's the cheapest at the moment. Well, I think uh, those two thoughts are probably correlated. I mean, like Google or Microsoft, that there's no question about the quality of the business. It's just the, the valuation that you're paying right now, right? Yeah. You think you get five percent real out of Google here? I think you could. Yeah. That's probably, I don't know that there's like obviously better bets out there. They got a lot of a lot of gross spend in that thing. Tell me what tell me a more important business to society than Google search. Give me a better business in the world. I don't know. Back in the days of the nifty 50, things were trading at like 60 PEs when rates were six. Like I don't think that historically Google where it trades is incredibly overvalued at all. Um I, there was a good one here I just missed. Uh, I mean, people love the inning question. They keep asking the inning question. <laughs> I just don't, I don't think that people that are asking that appreciate how crazy the nifty 50 got and how crazy I think things can get. Uh, that's, that's the comment behind the comment. It's just like, you know, I mean, even Burry was out here tweeting like 95% correlation between, um, you know, the tech bubble and right now. And so there was a great comment in it. I mean, even if you believe the chart that he posted, there was like a huge blow off top after where we sort of are. If you look at those two charts, like, I don't know how to play that game. Yeah. I would say like 90, 1997 probably felt a lot like the ninth inning. Yeah. When you were living it. I was probably closer to the six. There are a lot of guys who sold out in 96. Yeah. Because it was like, it was it historically expensive at that stage. <laughs> yeah. I read a book on Lowe's, the, uh, the Lowe's investors. I think it's called Cash is King or something like that. They all punched out in 96. All the easy money's been made all by 1996. Been made. I mean, the problem is that everything's just got, 
everything's just more and more expensive over time. It's just always been the case. You can go back, run that, you know, you can get standard mm. and pause data going back to like 1850 or something. It just gets more expensive every single year. Inflation, baby. It's a better measure than the CPI. Uh, some good questions here, but folks, we've run out of time. Have to save oh, them for next week. Let's do one more. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. How much growth does Google have to realize in order to deliver 5% real to investors? Isn't a lot of growth already priced in? Yeah, it is. Depends on what multiple you use out in the future, too. Like, so how much contraction do you have to get over through growth? Yeah. How long is the growth? How durable is it? What are the incremental returns? How much are you assuming for Google, Google Cloud? Depends on and, a lot of stuff. I don't know. Place your bets. Short it if you don't out, like it. Turns out making predictions about the future is hard. That's the hardest one. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the Especially answer. Especially when it's the about the future. <laughs> yes. That's right. I like that, Jake. Is Burry's Tesla short going to pay off? Yes, in spades. Easy one. All right, folks. Thanks very much. You see all the EV competition coming to market? There's a lot of it, man. I mean, it's a valuation issue as much as it's a business issue. Are any of those actually like businesses? Or are they just no? Are they just PowerPoint? Hasn't that doesn't matter. Else back. It doesn't okay. matter. All that matters is that you got capital to back you. I did. Next week.